Welcome everyone to Peds Ortho. We've got a really good podcast for you guys this episode and we're excited for a guest to join us in a bit. We'd also like to thank this episode's sponsor, OrthoFix. Their support helps to support Paws and his mission. And Carter will tell us a little bit more about them and some of the things that they're doing later on in the show. But for now, we'll jump right into things. I'm Josh Holt from the University of Iowa and I'm also with a couple of my co-hosts. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado. And without keeping any more suspense, our guest today is um, Crystal Perkins from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. So Crystal, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, great to join you all virtually and uh, be a part of the podcast. It's been a uh, great run of these podcasts. I've enjoyed hearing them. Yeah, it's it's a fun avenue to get information spread to, I think, mostly young and and practice building pediatric surgeons in the community. So it's a pleasure to have you on. And primarily we'll talk about sports medicine, but we've got some trauma stuff and an article that just came out in JPOS and that we'll really target on, but a lot of good stuff that you've been a part of, and we'll pick your brain on some other stuff as well as we go through today. So before we dive into that though, just to let our audience get to know you a little bit. So upcoming 4th of July weekend, we have an extra day for the weekend. If we wanted to find Dr. Perkins out doing something on a long weekend, where we find you? <laughs> so probably a couple places. So uh, I head to the lake any chance that I can get. So a nice summer weekend, find the water and the sun. So I'll uh, be up in the North Georgia mountains at the lake this weekend. And then uh, in Atlanta, for those of you who are familiar, the world's largest 10K road race, the Peachtree Road Race, is Monday. Uh, That's a 10K, and uh, I'll be running that on Monday. That matches most of my weekends, which are split between uh, nice summer outdoor weather and uh, working out. Nice. It might be nice to do them in the opposite order and do the race and then go relax, but hopefully the uh, (laughs) race will come in nice after a relaxing weekend. All right, second question. If I were to have time to travel to any country, any location in the world and do one thing, what would you suggest that that be? Oh, gosh. Great question. Um, We should just all take more vacations, I guess. Probably the place that I've been most recently that I enjoy the most was uh, Barcelona for Eposna. And uh, what a fantastic city and would have liked to have seen more of the kind of wine country in that area. Yeah, as well as a little bit more of the coast. So I was just there for a week, but I think so many areas to explore. Great food, wonderful wine. Yes, Barcelona is great. I was there for the Ponsetti 100-year anniversary when there were one of the Ponsetti meetings was there a few years ago. So agree, that's okay. a very nice place. All right, and then last question for you. If the rest of your life you had to operate with either an intern or a fellow, which one would you pick and why? <laughs> It depends on the day, maybe. Nope, nope. Uh, yes, you have to pick one. <laughs> when it's uh, July 1st, or <laughs> I would say they both have wonderful attributes to them. As somebody who's early in their career, learning to uh, work and teach with both groups uh, presents its own 
great rewards and also huge challenges. At this point in the year, it's phenomenal working with fellows because they're so close to being uh, out on their own. They have a real passion for everything that they're doing. It's awesome to see their progress over the year, how they've gained autonomy, how their confidence and skill set has grown. So I think that's the greatest rewarding aspect. Um, so I'd probably pick a fellow. That being said, a fellow who doesn't have an interest in your subspecialty isn't super excited either. But uh, no, I think working with fellows is terrific. The interns, they're fun. You can teach them a lot. But uh, I guess I'd choose a fellow. Cool. Cool. Well, we appreciate that. And as we go through some of the articles today and some of the work you've done, you know, you've done a really a lot of stuff. And honestly, before we even dive into the article, I'd like to pick your brain a little bit. You're in several multi-center study groups and research groups and different kind of prospective groups. So if you could take two or three minutes and just tell me and some of the other listeners who are newer in practice and want to be involved in some of these groups, maybe who are hesitant or nervous or not quite sure how to approach, maybe they don't feel like they quite have an end to that group. So what would you say to people who are out practicing who would like to be involved in some of this multi-center study stuff? Getting involved early is really important and there's no point that's too early. You know, we have medical students, residents, fellows involved in many of our multi-center study groups. Um, and that's a great way to get your foot in the door. I've been really fortunate to have what one of my uh, mentors called sponsors, you know, rather than people that just give you advice on what to do, they help open doors for you. So I've been really fortunate to get to know some of those people who have opened opportunities. And then uh, I think you really have to take advantage and be an active part of the study groups as opposed to just purely being a member. I think it can be really easy to jump on phone calls and sit and listen and take things in, but not participate and actively contribute. And I think when you actively contribute, you very quickly earn additional roles and responsibilities and opportunities. The start of practice is a little challenging. You're super busy trying to take care of patients, taking a lot of call, figuring out how to balance it all. Um, you know, I think if you can square away some time to do research early, it pays dividends. It also helps getting it rolling as a fellow as well. I'd say I took advantage of a lot of that because you have a little bit more dedicated time and then it kind of is a ball rolling downhill and keeps moving once you get it going. Yeah, I think that's a uh, key is to any way you can to find a, a sponsor, as you call it, someone who can vouch for you and help you get your foot in the door, as you mentioned. So, well, one of the studies that we're going to talk about today, again, the one from Jay Posner is not from one of the study groups that you're in. It's out of your institution and it's looking at traumatic hip dislocations and trying to describe them, the injury patterns, um, the need for additional imaging and some of the outcomes of those. So without going too much into the methods and things, essentially, you guys just look back at all of your traumatic hip dislocations in the pediatric age group, less than 18, and described the reduction in the imaging, what the findings were on plain radiographs, and then the advanced imaging imaging that showed additional things. So do you want to just take a couple minutes and tell us kind of what you found and a take-home point from that study that you guys published? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for letting me talk about it. You know, I think as a resident, you most commonly see tons of adult uh, or older adolescents, hip dislocations with posterior wall fractures and manage the fracture itself. And the pediatric population, traumatic hip dislocations are a bit different. And I had seen several as a fellow, several that had kind of followed up from outside places in clinic who, you know, perhaps had incarcerated fragments that had been missed and been treated. Um, and so that was really the stimulus to say, you know, how can we look at these patients for us to make sure that we're not missing some of these injuries? Uh, you know, that I think the unique 
unique thing in the pediatric pelvis is a lot of the posterior wall, depending on how young these kids are, is not yet ossified. And so solely looking for an ossific fragment that's incarcerated in a joint and causing it to be incongruent uh, isn't sufficient. And so that's what we found in our study that you know, only 25% of all the posterior wall fractures were visible on regular imaging, just plain pelvis radiographs. And so it really took that advanced imaging with a CT or MRI to identify those. You know, some of those are small fragments that may not need anything, but we found a significant majority of them with incarcerated fragments and a non-congruent joint when you looked at them with axial imaging. So the big takeaway, I think, was making sure that you get axial imaging and CT in young patients may not always be the best imaging modality. So when you have a 16-year-old, you know, certainly a CT when they get a trauma pack post-reduction is very reasonable. But when you have a 10-year-old with a traumatic hip dislocation and you're considering axial imaging sequences, I'd more strongly recommend an MRI to look more closely at that incarcerated labrum or cartilaginous posterior wall injuries. I think the study shows very, very vividly the number of missed injuries just based on plain radiographs and the findings that you guys saw. Um, a couple of follow-up questions that I have. You know, you certainly had more CTs and you mentioned now and in the study that a lot of those were just based on a trauma series and getting pelvis CT. Now that you guys have published this and looked back over the 2011 to 2017, are you getting more MRIs? I was surprised that you didn't have more MRIs in these patients. Is that something that you guys have changed? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think the people more inclined to get an MRI are perhaps some people doing hip arthroscopy. And so more likely to go after a incarcerated labrum or incarcerated fragment. Um, and so the routine series in the past have been getting a CT. I think that's what people are just comfortable with from training and what they apply from adults. But certainly within our own institution since that time, we've had a much greater trend towards getting an MRI. Yes. And I'd be curious for uh, the co-hosts on when you guys have a traumatic hip dislocation come in in a old adolescent or old child or adolescent patient, do you guys have a standard? Are you guys getting CTs or MRIs? So we're uh, getting both. So even if they already come in with a CT, which as you mentioned, most of them do have as a part of a trauma series, then we'll get an MRI as well, just for the, exactly the reasons you mentioned. Super interesting to, to see the numbers from your uh, place. Yep. Agreed. Yeah, the follow-up question for that then, Crystal, is, you know, you mentioned if you are doing hip arthroscopy, then, you know, you're looking for some of these things that you can repair. You didn't have any patients who had a surgical hip dislocation, and I'm curious if that was just a factor of who is taking care of these patients. Surgical hip dislocations may not have been as trendy or as well described, you know, 10 years ago when these patients initially started. Is that something that's changed at all at your practice over the last five years? Are there more surgical or I guess any surgical hip dislocations that you would advocate for? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's a lot of what skill set uh, the people taking care of them have. Uh, we have people who do both hip arthroscopy as well as routinely do open hip approaches and are very comfortable with hip, uh, surgical hip dislocations. Um, I think if that's the skill set that you have, and that's certainly reasonable. That being said, you know, a hip arthroscopy approach to be able to repair the labor, sometimes it's just a matter of getting the kind of infolded capsule out, um, which is a nice way to be able to do that arthroscopically. Other times it's repairing a posterior labral injury which is certainly much easier to do through an arthroscopic approach if you have that skill set as opposed to trying to do it through a surgical hip dislocation where the labrum's not as easily accessible. Um, so we had people doing both, but the trend has been given that we do have hip arthroscopy experience using that as a technique as opposed to the added morbidity of a surgical hip dislocation. 
so for our listeners, if, if anyone's out there who doesn't do hip arthroscopy, but is comfortable with more open hip approaches, is that something that you feel would be a reasonable approach to see to get an MRI, see a big labrum or a big cartilaginous posterior wall that um, needs to be repaired, uh, just doing a surgical hip dislocation, or do you think it's better off referring to someone who might do arthroscopy? I think if it were my hip or my child's hip, I would certainly rather have it done through a, a arthroscopy approach. I think certainly labral repair, if that's what it's going to need, is easier through that approach. You know, as long as they have a reasonably concentric reduction and they're not, you know, hinged, you know, dislocated or subluxed, then it's very reasonable that it doesn't have to be done this day, tonight, tomorrow to have that reasonably done in a short period of time. If you have no access at all to that, then I think it's very reasonable to do a surgical hip dislocation. Great. And then last question for you is where I did medical school at Carolina, one of the trauma surgeons there was relatively routining doing hip arthroscopy in even adult patients with hip dislocations. And I, again, couldn't quote numbers. It was a while ago, but I certainly remember him talking about how most patients, if not all that he went in and looked in the joint after a dislocation, he found some sort of loose body or something that could be cleaned out. And so I guess that was my question is you, you mentioned not doing Judays and a bunch of other plain radiographs because doing an axial imaging is just better. And so skipping some of that unnecessary stuff, is there any role for just doing hip arthroscopy and not doing CTs and not doing MRIs and just going and looking and taking care of any problems you find? That's a great question. Uh, you know, certainly we know there are benefits with other injuries and washing out that hemarthrosis and perhaps some of the cytokines that may contribute to later injuries, just as any surgery, you know, there's risks and benefits of everything. Uh, I think, you know, certainly we had a kid in here who had a, in fact, as a fellow, I did his hip reduction. It was very easy reduction. He had an incarcerated fragment, had a hip arthroscopy, labral repair and excision of that uh, loose body, and then subsequently went on to significant chondrolysis and uh, had a total hip. So, you know, many would argue that that was a sequelae of his initial injury and a risk associated with that. Uh, certainly you could say that that may have been contributed by fluid pressure or hip arthroscopy as well. So I'm not sure that a routine hip arthroscopy, you know, is necessary. Certainly of the number of patients that we reported in the series that all had non-operative treatment and all had excellent PROs. So I, I don't think I would advocate for routine hip arthroscopy. I think I would reserve that for the patients with kind of infolded capsule incongruent reduction for a frank loose body. I, I don't do any hip arthroscopy, so that is clearly not in my wheelhouse, but I'm just curious. I, I mean, are these, from a, an arthroscopy perspective, is this a, a more difficult hip, hip arthroscopy case than otherwise? Like, do, is this something that somebody who does a ton of hip arthroscopy should take on and not somebody who just sort of routinely does hip scopes? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, certainly when you have a joint that's full of hemarthrosis, getting initial visualization is perhaps the hardest part of the arthroscopy. And then working, you know, routinely with hip arthroscopy, we're working in the anterior aspect or in the peripheral compartment, either with an anterior labral injury or working in the peripheral compartment. And so you certainly have to be comfortable putting in posterior portals and repairing posterior injuries, getting out an infolded capsule uh, or doing a posterior labral repair. So I think routine hip arthroscopy skill set is very reasonable to be able to do this, but certainly not the uh, hip arthroscopy that you want to anticipate a quick in and out and uh, the easiest one you might do. Perfect. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And I've got one more question for you too. I think 
again, I'm, I'm not an arthroscopist. And so I think you're totally right that we don't really know what the right answer is for these injuries yet. And I think um, when they do well, they do really well, kind of no matter what you do to them. And when they do badly, they, they go south very quickly, like that patient that you mentioned. And so um, at our institution, we're, we're more likely to use a surgical hip dislocation and actually visualize that posterior wall component, fix it. And so that's worked really well for us, right? Um, but again, when it goes bad, it goes bad quickly. And one of the things that you mentioned in your paper, which I think is a really good point that I, I think we probably don't know the answer to yet, is what is a clinically significant posterior wall or unossified chondral fragment, right? Like, what does it mean that it's clinically significant or insignificant? Because sometimes, you know, you see those huge chondral fragments, they're well reduced, but it is, you know, it's a pretty big chunk. And I, I think we can leave them alone and kids do well and we can fix them and kids do well. So what, what is your feeling about what, what's, if somebody asked you to define what a clinically significant fragment is, uh, what would that be for you? Yeah. So I think the, you know, the biggest thing that less often are we repairing osseous posterior wall fractures. I think more commonly what we're seeing is these cartilaginous fragments with the capsule that get infolded into the joint. And I think those are unlikely to do well because of the fact they're infolded and you have an incongruent joint. So I think just sweeping those out oftentimes is sufficient. You have a good congruent joint at that point in time. And as you let your traction forces off, you should have a nice congruent joint. Um, and so I think those oftentimes you may not even need to stabilize. So sometimes we are just able to sweep that out of the joint and it doesn't require any additional stabilization. Other times the labrum itself is torn and unstable and repairing that is necessary. But I think we see very, very few of these. I think we had one in our series that had an ORIF of a true, you know, adult style posterior wall fracture. But I, you know, I don't think we see many of them in the pediatric population. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is a topic that I think would really benefit from a multi-center, like tons of, of patients, because, you know, you, you always have that last anecdotal patient that you think of. And we had one that the, the chondral piece that it was infolded, right? And when we folded it out, I mean, it was a massive fragment. It was like a third of the joint surface. And so to me, that requires stabilization, or I think it requires stabilization. You know, we fixed it because we were there. But um, I, I think having some more numbers would really be interesting to see how many of them are those really big fragments versus, you're totally right, those ones that likely just need to be swept out and then are probably going to be completely stable once the joint is congruent. So thank you. Super interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, some of these, uh, you know, rare problems are ones that that's where multi-center study groups are great and having, you know, prospective data collection. It takes a while for us to get a great series together. Um, but I think that's certainly the direction that research is moving as some of these high quality multi-center prospective studies for these less common problems. Julia and Crystal, um, any experience or thoughts on stress test of the hip, stressing it posteriorly under fluoro to see if there's stability? Has that weighed into your decision-making ever? Yeah, so in our particular series, we didn't look at that. There were some uh, individual patients that underwent, like our, some of the real young patients uh, who underwent like an arthrogram and stress testing after close reduction um, and were concentric. We had some patients with delayed diagnosis. And so some of those patients had stress testing under fluoroscopy. Um, some of them that were younger put into spica cast or an A-frame cast or in a brace uh, to help provide some additional stability in those youngest patients. Um, I don't think we had any in our adolescent cohort that underwent arthroscopy that had subsequent uh, stress fluoroscopy performed. Yeah, I would say we're not routinely doing a stress test, 
you know, if we're going to fix it based on imaging, we're going to fix it based on imaging. I will say though, that I have been pretty, when it, when it's in my hands, when I'm on call and one of these comes in, I'm pretty adamant about doing the closed reduction in the operating room. And the benefit of that is a, you know, it's in your hands. You're probably not going to knock off the epiphysis. Right. And the second reason is then you just do your stress test there. You can get a really good sense of how stable it is. So I really push if I'm on call and it's feasible when I get these to, to do the reduction in the operating room and do the stress test there. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really important point, especially for some of our junior residents taking call, you know, they hear hip dislocation. Okay, we've got it. And, um, you know, I think it's one thing, you know, when I have a 15, 16, 17 year old football player with a hip dislocation, you know, the proximal femoral physis is closed or nearly closed, reducing it. And, but we talk a lot about, you know, making sure we have appropriate sedation and a single attempt at close reduction. But I agree with you. I think some of these young kids that have them, I don't want the phone call that says, you know, I just caused a physeal fracture. I would much rather be watching that under live fluoroscopy in the OR. And if it's starting to move, be able to stabilize it and then reduce it. Awesome. Thank you. That's great discussion. And like you said, this is a prime candidate for a multi-center prospective study. I can see randomization to non-operative to a routine hip scope to wash things out and clean out the joint and get any loose bodies out to even something open or repair or things like that. So we'll be waiting for that uh, invite to come out for that randomized <laughs> multi-center study. See what study. I can do. Perfect. Um, so we're going to change gears a little bit here. Carter is going to introduce a new segment before we get into the lightning round. So I'll turn it over to Carter to tell us about our new shenanigans here. All right. New shenanigans. So Crystal, I want to pick your brain on a bunch of completely unsolved controversial areas in sports medicine. The good news is there's no right answer. So there's no wrong answer. The bad news is we're going to try to hold you to give us an answer, whether it's just based on your intuition of the literature or wherever your sort of gut stands at this point. So question number one, who should get an ACL repair rather than a reconstruction, if anyone? <laughs> yeah, great. So uh, I would say distal avulsions or uh, certainly very reasonable distal avulsions, whether distal ACL avulsions or tibial spines, that's a repair in my hand every time. Proximal or femoral ACL avulsions have been less promising in the literature, and so I'm a little less inclined to do those. Um, you know, Bayer has been a super exciting. Uh, Martha Murray has done great work uh, with Bayer and certainly a great promising option. Uh, the outcomes in adolescence um, would suggest perhaps slightly higher rates of uh, ACL graft injury. That being said, the beauty of it is you're not burning any autograft options as you do that. So it's an easy revision in the event that they do fail. But in my hands, a uh, quad tendon ACL uh, autograft is what... Uh, using routinely. So distal ACL uh, avulsions, repairs, proximal, less inclined, and everybody else gets a quad tendon autographed. Perfect. Perfect firm answer for a controversial area. I love it. All right. So next up, while you're doing an ACL, who, if anyone, should get some sort of lateral extraarticular tenodesis or ALL reconstruction? Um, and what technique do you use, if any? Yeah, so in my hands, uh, if they a primary ACL reconstruction with 10 or more degrees of hyperextension, uh, gets a lateral extraarticular tenodesis. And my uh, choice for that is an IT band, um, a modified Lemaire IT band tenodesis, which is shown to have less overconstraint as compared to uh, other uh, IT band or uh, lateral extraarticular tenodesis procedures. 
Um, and then in all revisions in my hand, unless they have significant lateral compartment uh, wear, uh, meniscal loss, uh, all revision ACL reconstructions get a modified Lumera IT band. Perfect. And how about skeletally immature ACLs? Do you have a preferred technique, all epiphyseal over the top? Yeah, so for uh, three or more years of growth remaining, uh, I do a, a physeal sparing or McKaylee IT band ACL reconstruction. Uh, for less than three years of growth remaining, they get a kind of physeal respecting transphyseal ACL reconstruction with a soft tissue graft in my hands. It's a quad autograft. Gotcha. So no one's getting an all epiphyseal. It's either a soft tissue transphyseal or a, a IT band over the top. Correct. Um, how about a kid who comes in with a stable symptomatic OCD in their knee? It's hurt, been sort of a nagging pain for a long time. MRI looks like the cartilage is intact. How long do you tend to non-op them before you're going to the operating room? You know, it's skeletally immature 13-year-old. Uh, I, I take a, several things into account. I think if they have significant hemicondyle edema, if they have subchondral cysts that are forming, if it's a lateral femoral condyle OCD, or if it's just a really broad area, you know, you're starting to look at these that cover, you know, three centimeters or more. Um, I'm much more inclined to drill those. And I do a retroarticular drilling. Um, I think when you have the young kids, eight, nine, 10 years old, uh, that are vitamin D deficient, that have a smaller OCD, minimal edema, I think those are very reasonable for non-operative management. I typically uh, kind of offer both options to the family. Typically, I don't push them directly to surgery. We kind of talk about percentages of healing based on all of our rock data uh, for stable OCDs with non-operative management and the timeline that requires. But I would say in, a, in most 13-year-old males or females with a significant OCD, um, oftentimes leaning towards drilling. Right off the, right off the bat. Awesome. Okay. Um, how about a traumatic osteochondral defect, you know, uh, two centimeters or longer on each side? Do you have a go-to, you know, full thickness, do you have a go-to between some sort of ACI and OC allograft for first treatment? Uh, so for kind of like true osteochondral fracture, uh, patellar dislocation, osteochondral fracture off the lateral femoral condyle, I try to acutely repair those. Uh, we're monitoring those closely at our own institution and following those and have not had to go back and revise or had failure fixation with uh, what we do as an all-suture bridge type fixation. Uh, so basically using biocomposite anchors loaded with bicral suture to create a suture bridge type construct over top of them. So um, we're quite aggressive with osteochondral fracture repair. Um, and then for the unstable OCD, um, you know, those, the majority of time have significant subchondral bone disease as well. And so my preferred is typically a uh, osteochondral allograft, although uh, bone grafting with autologous bone and then doing like a Macy sandwich type technique is also an option if the family's kind of radically opposed to a, the idea of an allograft. And last question, how and when are you um, doing MCL trephination to uh, get to the medial meniscus for your exam? Not very frequently. Uh, probably, gosh, I bet not even, you know, a half dozen times maybe have I done that in practice. Um, you know, I think the majority of times when you need to get to the kind of posterior horn medial meniscus to be able to repair uh, I tend to use either kind of all inside devices or uh, something like a sharpshooter where you, know, you don't have to have, you know, trying to get something like a meniscal scorpion in the back there where you really have to be able to open the mouth of it uh, in a tight joint is hard. So 
I think having uh, several different meniscal repair techniques up your sleeve, depending on the tightness of the joint. That being said, I don't compromise my ability to get a meniscus repair. You know, I'd much rather just trephinate the MCL and get a, a good repair than I would to compromise that. All right, perfect. There you have it, everyone. The correct answers to half a dozen controversies in <laughs> pediatric sports medicine. Problem solved. I like it. I like it. <laughs> so much good stuff there in a rapid fire manner. So we hope to uh, sway everyone to practice as Dr. Perkins does. Um, <laughs> Okay. Well, at this point, we're going to do a little something different. We're going to take a couple minutes away from the show to hear about our sponsor, OrthoFix. Their sponsorship supports POSNA and its mission to advance education, research, and quality care. That is to say, sponsorship does not come directly to the podcast and will never affect the content of this show outside of the next couple minutes. So we have Dr. Dave Frumberg from Yale, who's here to talk with us about OrthoFix and specifically two of their products, their lengthening nail called Fitbone, and their software called Orthonext that helps you plan deformity corrections. So Dave, can you tell us a little bit about these products? The Orthonext system is a computer planning system used for deformity analysis and correction, and it goes hand in hand with the Orthofix Fitbone intramedullary lengthening device, where there's a subcutaneous electric receiver that is used to power a motor inside this nail. So instead of turning a dial or using a magnetic motor, you are driving a motor using electric stimulation across the skin. Yeah, there's a receiver that is placed directly below the skin, and it's very quick. Okay, now I know you love the instrumentation with the actual Fitbone nail itself, and we can all take a look at those details on the OrthoFix website. But what I think would be really interesting would be to hear about your specific experience. Do you have any cases you can tell us about that you feel like went really well specifically because of the Fitbone nail or the OrthoNext software? case that comes to mind is the case of a 15-year-old girl with X-linked hypophosphatemia. She comes from Haiti. And when she was overseas, they attempted some guided growth. And there is unfortunately an iatrogenic injury to the medial physis of the distal femur. She was left with a 35-millimeter discrepancy and about 18 degrees of varus of the distal femur. So, you know, correcting that much deformity into valgus plus lengthening may be a little bit extreme especially when the apex of the deformity is at the physeal scar. But if you can go through this system in a perfectly calibrated computer environment, which is what I did with the OrthoNext system, then you can do trial and error and figure out exactly if this is going to work. So it turned out that with perfect planning, I was able to recreate what I did on the computer in the operating room and got her aligned perfectly. And then uh, she got her length and is now consolidated and I think that's the ultimate power of the system. Well, thank you. And let's get back to the show. So we'll, we'll shift gears, but thank you. That's uh, good information. We'll shift gears a little bit and go to our, our lightning round. I'm going to actually start it off here. Um, Dr. Perkins, you can't answer this, but the other two co-hosts can. Pediatric patients with meniscus root injuries. What type of injury happens and which menisci is more likely to be injured? Julia. Have a stab. Oh gosh, I like forgot what meniscal roots are. It's been it's been, a, it's been a hot minute. I don't know lateral. I vote lateral. Strong work, Carter. What do you think? What type of root, like posterior horn? And uh, I don't know. I would think I would think medial. That's what hey. I've seen more commonly. All right. So Dr. Perkins had a study that they just published last week in J A J S M. Yeah. So Dr. Perkins, tell us who's right and who's wrong. 
<laughs> Julia gets the points on a lateral meniscus. Carter was probably thinking about adults where it happens more commonly in the medial meniscus. Uh, yeah, so the study was kind of unique in the fact that some outcomes have been published in adults. And most typically, the adult uh, root injury is a more degenerative medial meniscus that with a posterior root uh, injury. And so what we found that the majority of root injuries in adolescents in our series that were repaired were root avulsions uh, of the posterior root of the lateral meniscus in association with ACL injuries. Yeah, so interesting and found pretty good results with um, fixation of those um, through transosseous repair and good return to sport. You're over 80% return to same or higher level activity. Um, so in your hands, when you're looking at these injuries, how aggressive are you with repair? I, I assume everyone who has any clinically relevant meniscus injury you're repairing with these? Yeah, so I'd say in general in the pediatric population, um, we're definitely aggressive in meniscus repair. The blood flow tends to be good and our rates of revision or failure of those are low. In terms of repairing meniscus roots, um, you know, I've just been in practice for four years, but I would say perhaps I've become a little, I've done fewer meniscus roots in the past two years as I did in the first two years, perhaps. Um, you know, I think I'm real careful at assessing. We see, you know, in fact, I just did an ACL today that had an oblique tear into the posterior root that that root, once we debrided that root flap, the root attachment itself was completely stable. And so and I think you have to assess not only is there a tear into the root attachment, but is the root attachment stable? You know, and then we're looking more at kind of Risberg and Humphrey and whether or not they're intact, <clears throat> those meniscofemoral ligaments. And, you know, those meniscofemoral ligaments serve as a secondary stabilizer to your root attachment as well. Um, so, you know, I think if I have an unstable root, absolutely, I'm repairing it each time through a transosseous technique. Um, but I think we see more and more of those that are kind of partial root injuries with a stable root attachment. Um, and those I have not been repairing. Yeah, interesting findings, kind of opposite side of the knee from what we typically see in adults that I could certainly see um, additional centers studying this and looking at it more closely as obviously your patient population is relatively limited, but it would be interesting to see if it truly holds up that that lateral side is more often involved than in the adult population. All right, let's turn it over to the co-host for the rest of the lightning round. All right, well, I can uh, sort of stick with the sports medicine topic for now. Our next article up is out of AJSM, early operative versus delayed operative versus non-operative treatment of pediatric and adolescent ACLs. So this was primarily from HSS, but part of the Pluto study group of which Dr. Crystal Perkins is a member. And it's a meta-analysis with over a thousand ACL patients. And long story short, um, the study found pretty conclusively early operative treatment of young ACLs was superior. Delayed operative treatment had more meniscal tears, presumably developing along the way. And it didn't give you any better stability, which some have argued that if you wait, you might get better stability of the ACL later. Non-op had more instability and more meniscal tears and less return to sport. So pretty strong statement for um, early operative fixation in skeletally immature ACLs, which is where the literature seems to have been going for a while. So before we talk about the actual article, sort of to get back to what Josh was getting at, Crystal, would you tell us a little bit about your involvement in um, this study and really in, in the Pluto study group? 
Sure. So Min Coker did a phenomenal job kind of organizing Pluto. And uh, it's been a great collaborative effort and really a, a wonderful opportunity for me to kind of get exposed and work with real leaders in our field in sports medicine and pediatric ACL reconstruction. Um, you know, I think the quality of research that we do has to continue to evolve and improve. And so I think everything will continue to move the direction of high quality prospective studies with prospective data collection and patient reported outcome scores. And so those take time and a ton of energy and effort um, and people on the ground running. But I think the end result of the data collection we get is tremendous. And so it's been a wonderful opportunity not only to participate in that, uh, but to kind of contribute to the evolution of ACL reconstruction um, in our pediatric population as well. Yeah, really impressive research. Hats off to you and everyone involved. Is there any young ACL injury that you're waiting on or at this point or should they all be fixed immediately? Yeah, I think that that has evolved and changed a lot, I think, over time. And so, you know, I, I mean, I recall being a resident and hearing people say, you know, oh, well, we'll just wait till you're a little bit older. And what I tell families now is, you know, if we're going to treat your child non-operatively and they truly have a positive lock on a pivot, they truly have an unstable knee, we're not going to run, jump, cut, pivot, play sports, any of those things. Well, you know, if, if you have a nine-year-old boy with an ACL tear and you're, you're like, okay, Johnny, no running, jumping, no sports, no PE, no recess, no playing with your friends. That's like day-to-day -day life as a nine-year-old. I mean, they jump down the stairs. And so that's very different than telling a, you know, 16 year old, you know, for that, for some underlying reason, perhaps can't have surgery, that they can't do those things. You just, you can't stop this nine year old from being a kid. Um, and so as a result, they have recurrent instability episodes. And in the process, we know they cause additional meniscal injuries. Those meniscal injuries are less likely to be repairable. They have lower patient reported outcome scores over time. And we have great techniques with ways to preserve growth, uh, to reconstruct the ACL and stabilize the knee. And so for all of those reasons, uh, we kind of strongly encourage ACL reconstruction, even in that youngest cohort that perhaps in the past was counseled to wait. And what if we take it the step further for the congenitally absent ACLs? When do you think those need to get reconstructed? Yeah, I think those are the kids, you know, you see some of them that are lower demand and they're not having any functional instability. You may have a kid with you know, fibular hemianelia that has a congenitally absent ACL and uh, they have no complaints of instability whatsoever. But I think when they start to experience instability events or they've had a pivot episode, you know, are getting swelling and bone bruising um, and they're going to continue to place demands on their knee that are going to require an ACL, then that's when you want to start considering them. Okay. Got it. So congenital absence, wait till they start to get symptomatic. All right, Julia, you want to take the next one? We can go back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we'll talk about clavicle fractures for just a second. Uh, so this is a paper out of the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. And so it, we'll kind of jump right into a question for everybody. So within the first few weeks after fracture, what percent of adolescent clavicle fractures worsened as far as shortening, displacement, or angulation? What do you guys think? I assume you don't want me to answer this question since I was a co-author on this. Correct. <laughs> yes. You, you didn't, you didn't, you, you, you don't get to answer. Uh, maybe a fifth shorten. And I know cause I picked it. So I cheated. Okay. So yeah, super interesting. And I think, uh, I expected it to be low, but I didn't expect it to be that low. So it was 4% worsened which is super cool. I think, um, as a person who tries not to fix these when I 
can. Um, so 26% actually improved over those first couple weeks. Um, 70% of them didn't change and then 4% of them worsened and none of them worsened enough to require surgical fixation. So Crystal, I, this is obviously a pretty hot topic right now too. So are you, are you jumping towards fixing these or what, what's your spiel to the family? Yeah, sure. So this is uh, props to another great multi-center study group that Ben Hayworth has led out of Austin Children's. So um, the FACT study group has been looking very closely at clavicle fractures, and we're all very aware of the adult literature, which has kind of swayed back and forth all over the place, but certainly trends towards repair of them uh, due to risks of malunion or nonunion. And what we see in our pediatric population is very different. So I am a clavicle fracture nihilist through and through. Um, I very rarely fix a clavicle fracture and I'm pretty strongly opinionated about it, perhaps when I talk to families. Um, so my discussion with the families is, is that the clavicle is going to heal either way. We can put a plate on it and heal. It will heal without surgery. Um, you can trade a bump for a scar and a plate that may or may not bother you and some numbness in the area of the chest wall around the incision um, as a trade for the bump. You know, I think the biggest thing is you have to spend time with these families, right? So they show up in your clinic. The fracture was two days ago, three days ago. The kid is miserable. They hurt. Mom is completely paranoid. She hasn't slept for three days. Um, and she's like, you have to fix Bobby's clavicle. Like our pediatrician told us it has to be fixed. We have a friend who broke their clavicle. who's 30 and had it fixed. And you have to fix this. Everybody's exhausted. They hurt. They're frustrated. Um, and so you have to spend a little bit of time with them. And so um, spending a little bit of time, you know, I tell them, we're going to see you back in a week or 10 days. And we're going to get another x-ray. And what I think you're going to find is you're going to be tremendously more comfortable. Oftentimes they're not splinting as much and the x-rays already look better. And that is very rewarding for the family to see, oh, wow, this is you know improving significantly already. And when we stop hurting and we're getting some sleep, all of a sudden the idea of not doing surgery on this is significantly more appealing. Um, I also have a series of x-rays uh, that through facts we uh, have gathered that show kind of sequential healing and remodeling of clavicle fractures, even in you know, 16, 17-year-olds. Um, and so I often will show those to the family and go, hey, here's what we started with and here's where we're going. And here's the data on, you know, well, Johnny's a right-handed football player and it's, it's his right clavicle. And what is that going to mean to his ability to throw and, you know, make the NFL draft? Um, and so spending some time and talking through all those things is very helpful. And uh, you'll be amazed very quickly at the end of the day. They're like, oh, wow. Well, if you're telling me I can get the same outcome without surgery and this is going to heal, then of course I don't want a surgery. Absolutely. That's fantastic advice. That's essentially what I do too. And it, uh, they are just, this is a time commitment. And uh, these are on busy clinic days. You know, honestly, I hate seeing new, new clavicle fracture pop up, you know, it's like, oh boy, here we go. Uh, but you're so right. Sometimes a second visit makes all the difference. So thank you. That was, that was great. Uh, jo or Carter, back to you. All right, back to the sports medicine literature. So this next study is a recent one in JPO, establishing clinically significant outcomes after ACL reconstruction in pediatric patients. It's from Rush. And basically the authors looked at 59 ACL patients and they tested some um, outcomes, including patient reported outcomes uh, and other knee scores to figure out what would work in this pediatric ACL population. 
I won't go into all the details, but basically they list recommendations for sort of what the minimally clinically important difference is for these scores. So if you are using outcome scores, the paper is a good resource to go and say, these will work. And this is the difference that we expect to see for a, for a patient. So Crystal, you know, you've got a, a very unique exposure to these outcome scores from your research experience. Are there any that you use in your clinical practice? And um, in a perfect world, what would we all be using to follow these ACL and maybe other other knee patients? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, patient-reported outcome scores, at the end of the day, you don't know what you don't ask. Um, and so oftentimes, you know, you walk in and you're like, hey, how's your knee feeling? Great. And so the clinic note is like, Johnny's doing great. He's doing perfect. He's thrilled with everything. And then when you dig a little bit further, you know, he has some pain when he climbs the stairs or he can't, he doesn't quite feel confident in his ability to jump, cut or pivot quite yet. Um, and so really asking those questions in a detailed way is important. That being said, asking our pediatric population knee scores that are used in adults are not helpful, right? Can you walk a block? Can you, you know, can you take a bath and clean yourself? You know, so there's huge ceiling effects. And so you can't use standard scores for adults in the pediatric population because at baseline, they all, you know, reach a threshold, you know, their maximum score very quickly, but that doesn't reflect, can they do normal, you know, kid or teenager activities. So we have routine collection of patient reported outcome scores for all patients uh, in our clinics and they're, you know, both diagnosis and surgery specific um, with the intention of routinely collecting these on everyone and trying to get better answers to questions uh, other than, hey, how are you feeling today? Um, and so part of that is the activities that they do. And so having more pediatric and adolescent specific questions as opposed to just a Tegner score, which we're all familiar with, kind of an activity-related score, which again has a great ceiling effect in it. For knee patients, we use a PD-IKDC, which is basically modified, you know, IKDC that's been used in the past, and that's more helpful in the pediatric population. And then I think we're going to continue to see PROMISE scores really evolve. Um, you know, PROMISE scores have a great ability to ask very few questions and kind of their cascading series of questions. So rather than ask 40 questions, we can ask perhaps seven to get the same uh, outcome. And so I think things are really going to trend in the direction of more and more PROMISE scores as validated scores. Um, but then the minimally important clinical difference is also uh, important. So just saying somebody went from a score of 75 to 85, that reaches some p-value threshold. It typically isn't uh, appropriate. And so we're really starting to find, you know, how much improvement do you have to have for that to be a significant clinical improvement? And uh, we're gradually doing that with outcome scores. Yeah, that's why I picked this just to quickly review. You know, there's nothing sexy about this study. There's nothing. It's not going to headline academy meetings or podium presentation or anything. But I think getting the PROs and finding the right ones, and as you mentioned, there's there's other more pediatric-specific ones and even some of the ones they looked at. I think these are just ones that were routinely collected. But establishing that MCID and the uh, patient-acceptable symptomatic score as well, I think, are important things for all of these PROs as we keep moving forward. All right. Well, we probably have time for one more, maybe. So we'll, we'll go for, uh, let's do an article out of JPO 
um, switch gears a little bit from uh, Cincinnati. And the title is also the question. So can over containment prevent recurrence in children with cerebral palsy and hip dysplasia undergoing hip reconstruction? And so I guess question to you guys, although Josh probably read it, so he'd be cheating, um, is uh, do you think over containing helps or do you think it doesn't matter? Uh, sure. seems like it should help. Crystal, you can pass or you can take a stab <laughs> at it. I, I would imagine, I, I'm going to guess with my sports brain here, that uh, there's some balance, too much over-containment, and I imagine you increase some of your joint forces or potentially accelerate some degenerative changes. So there's probably the uh, perfect balance of containment. Crystal brings up a really good point, actually, which is I think we don't know what the long term, uh, right, of, of potentially over-containing would cause. Uh, but in the short term, um, over-containment does seem to help, and particularly in patients that are non-ambulatory, so higher GMFC. FCS scores, um, and then kids less than six years old, so younger kids, uh, which makes sense, right? Because they're they're more likely to come out with time, and then uh, a migration percentage of greater than fifty percent at the time of surgery. So the more severe hips do better with over containment and have a lower failure rate. And the failure uh, was defined as a requirement of needing a, a repeat surgery or having a dislocation. So um, I think. You know, are you over-containing regularly, Carter? Is this something you're doing? You know, I've not. I've got one of these patients coming up, and I think this paper is really useful. We've talked on this show before with Puya about his paper about how you really want to wait till they're six. And if you can wait till they're six, it decreases your risk of recurrence for these CP hips. So I really like this because this gives you something to do if you can't wait till they're six. When they're coming out at four or five, but, you know, that's a nice thing to have in your tool chest to be able to over-contain and maybe prevent that recurrence. Absolutely. How about you, Josh? Yeah, it's funny because I've never necessarily tried to put a number on this, right? They talk about containing and over-containing and things, and I've never necessarily thought of that. But but as I read through this and, and really thought critically, I do, and I do over-contain. And certainly the ones that are more dysplastic, I aim for more coverage and more what they would describe as over-containment. So without ever, I don't know that I've ever necessarily been taught or learned or thought about it as a number or a, you know, a dichotomy of over or not over contained, but I certainly find myself doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it, it absolutely makes sense. And this is one of those things that uh, there, there are always research projects out there, right. For stuff that we don't necessarily think about or, or put our thumb on, but then here it is. So I think super interesting. And, and the question remains, I think what happens to these kids long-term, you know, if you looked at more longer term outcomes, what is, what does that do? So anyway, super interesting, uh, but I want to respect everybody's time. So probably end there. Yes, it was a real pleasure. Dr. Perkins, you are a pro podcaster. I would like to thank <laughs> the AOSSM and the podcast you did because it certainly primed you well for this. You did a great job and it was really great to hear your insight and your thoughts on so much great information on, on research and studies and multi-centers and, and clinical approach to sports practice and kids. So appreciate it very much. No, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a ton of fun. Great to talk with you guys. Our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Have a, right. Have a good night. Good night, everyone. See you guys. Bye. Bye.